Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jessica Kale, and I am here today with Zenobia Neal. Uh, Zenobia is the author of Ariadne Unravel, uh, which uh, is an absolutely incredible book. I know I mentioned it on a previous episode, so I'm absolutely thrilled to have Zenobia here with us today to talk about that book and a little bit of the history behind it. So welcome, Zenobia. Thank you so much for coming. Hey, it's so good to be here. I've awesome. Been a big fan of Dirty Sexy History for years, and I'm thrilled to talk to you about Ariadne and Ravel. Oh, wonderful. Well, we're so glad to have you. Now, um, with the, the story of Ariadne and, uh, and the Minotaur and all of that, I think a lot of people are probably familiar with it, but just in case they're not, um, can you tell us a little bit about that, uh, about that myth? Um, how, how would you provide context? Um, so the story is that, first of all, Pasiphae, and I just want to say that um, have writing Greek mythology, there are different pronunciations for every name, and so I'm just going to go with my way, but that doesn't mean it's the right way. Oh, that's absolutely <laughs> fine. <laughs> um, because I feel like there isn't one right way. It's like there are many different ways to say all these names. Um, anyway, so Pasiphae was the queen of Crete. And the story is that King Minos, um, when when he, he I, I just have to keep going back and back and back. <laughs> it's um, kind of like that. <laughs> yeah, it's always like that. So Minos had two brothers and it wasn't clear which one of them was gonna become king of Crete. They were all sons of Zeus. And so when it was decided that Minos would be sent the king of Crete, um he he was he was chosen by being sent a white bull from the sea and he said he would sacrifice it to poseidon but the bull was so beautiful that he decided to keep it for himself so that he could use it to um father more bulls and in revenge poseidon poseidon maybe it was poseidon somebody made his wife fall in love with the white bull. And then she got Daedalus, who's the famous inventor, engineer, um, to construct a wooden cow for her to go inside so the bull could mate with her because that's just what happens. Um, and this is like a regular part of the story. And this is where I first actually started to kind of pull at threads to write my novel because it's a very strange story. <laughs> So uh, nine months later, uh, <laughs> the Minotaur was born from this bull that came from the sea. And this bull, um, who's Asterion, who's the Minotaur, was um, crazed. This is the traditional myth. And so Daedalus built this labyrinth for him to live in. And then they asked for tributes, or they demanded tributes of 14 Athenian youths to be sacrificed to him every three, seven or nine years, depending on which story you're following, which myth you're following. So that's the, the traditional story of the Minotaur. And the thing about it is that normally in this story, it's told, it's told from Theseus's point of view, but it's also a lot about Daedalus and what an amazing inventor he was. And he was an amazing inventor um, because the ancient Minoans or the Minoans, 
had working plumbing, they had a sewage system, they had hot and cold running water. And it's, it's incredible. Um, although I, I can't say that Daedalus did it. Uh, there is also a theory that Daedaloi is means like a engineer. So it could, it's like a thing where one person was given the traits of many. So it, it might've been like a team of people and, uh, and they just kind of simplified it. Yeah, or generations of people. Wow. You know, generate, like it would be like the engineer group did this over time. And then right, they right. were attributed to saying like, you know, it's like one person did it, but over 500 years. So it's many different people. Right, right. Okay, yeah. now that is so interesting. I was definitely struck by uh, by the fact that Ariadne had the, the running hot and cold water in her rooms. I thought that was absolutely incredible. Yeah, I mean, it, when I read that, I felt like, I felt like, wow, we're going back and forth in time. You know, I think uh, when you're younger, you think of time as a linear thing. And I'm not saying that it's not for us as like in my own lifetime, it is a linear thing. But when you look at history, you know, you can see how there are times of, of great highs and then times of great lows and then times of kind of both. I feel like we're in now, you know, it's like, um, it feels very apocalyptic, but I can order all this amazing food. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Or, you know, we kind of lost that, that hot and cold running water, like it went away for centuries you know centuries. and uh it's, it's kind of like how we we lost the recipe for concrete didn't we it was kind of famously uh what rome used to use concrete for for building underwater and then uh that recipe was lost for a very long time and then they only rediscovered it like relatively recently and i feel like in this generation you can really see how those things are lost because i mean it feels kind of cliche but like cursive seems like something that you know a lot of people had to learn in school and now I mean my kids are learning cursive in school but they don't read it on a regular basis mm -hmm. you know and you can see how one generation can lose something that all the previous generations spent so much time working on right that's that's so interesting and then that um of course that that society in Knossos uh, the Minoans it it's notoriously quite mysterious isn't it there there isn't a lot that we actually know about them um I can't imagine how you went about actually researching this can you tell us a little bit about how you did that yeah it was really hard <laughs> but also incredibly fun and rewarding so I first I first got the idea I mean I've always been inspired by the Minoans um and I actually remember when I first learned about them in ninth grade and um, my ninth grade history teacher, John Leopold, who I dedicated the book to was um, really helpful in this when I was writing it and he passed away a little bit ago last year. Oh, I'm sorry. But it was, he was able, he touched so many people and like really helped them learn and love history. And um, he read an early draft and gave me some really helpful feedback. And so that was really great. But I remember looking in that history book and seeing this image of, uh, of Minoan and Mycenae, I mean, and uh, just being like, this is so cool. And so I've always, since I was like 14, been interested in the Minoans and the snake goddess, of course, is so compelling. So um, I've always been interested and I wanted to know more. So I've, I read a lot of books and I was lucky enough to go to Crete in 2016. So that was really helpful to actually be there and feel 
the island and meet people from there and kind of learn about their culture, even though it's thousands of years later. Um, it was really interesting. So I did a lot of research. I talked to a lot of people. I'm in a um, modern Minoan pagan group on Facebook that wow. was actually very helpful. Um, Laura Perry is um, the one who, who really championed the movement and she um, helped me with this book as well. And then there's so much visual art there's no, we don't have very much, we can't read very much of what they left behind, but we can see a lot of their art. And seeing things in the museum at Crete was really inspirational. Mm -hmm. um, and just seeing the architecture as well is just amazing. So I read a lot and then um, I just tried to make it as realistic as possible. Oh, and you did a fantastic job. I mean, it's so vivid. Um really, really incredible. Now, it's interesting that you mentioned, of course, the, the modern Minoan paganism group. You know, of course, religion is such a huge part of this book. And, and in it, of course, um, Ariadne is a high priestess in her society. Now, in the in the myth, was she also a high priestess when, when she was supposed to have helped uh, Theseus to get through the labyrinth? So the myth usually tells the story of her as being the princess and um, also because the myth is usually told from an Athenian point of view, she's just a girl, um, just a love-struck girl who's willing to betray her family and her people for the stranger. Um, so in the myth, she's usually not a priestess. Um, but what we know about the Minoans is that they did have women in positions of power. Mm -hmm. And one of the things is that Kenosis is, um, it's a, they call it a palace, but it's also a temple. It was a place of worship and they had all these really cool things like um, in the rooms, you could, you could move the doors so that on the winter and summer solstice, the light would come through in a specific way. Wow. And so like we say, we say it's a palace and that he was a king and she was a princess, but maybe it was actually a temple and he was a priest and she was a priestess. So that really changes the power dynamic of the story. Mm -hmm. And so traditionally, she's just like this young girl who likes to dance. And they also have um, in the in the traditional myth, Daedalus is the one who gives these who tells Ariadne to give Theseus the string to help him out of the labyrinth. And like Daedalus is the one who does all this stuff. And I was like, wait a minute, what about her? What about her story and her own her power? So I wanted to have her have a lot more power, like I feel a real Minoan woman would have. And it actually makes more sense that way. You know, um, so many pieces kind of came together. I remember, of course, uh, you know, reading that myth, probably about the same age that, that you were, you know, kind of studying that. And uh, I was definitely struck by that. Um, all the, everything, the way that you brought it together, it makes a lot more sense, you know, than that a woman wouldn't just, you know, kind of uh, allow her, her brother, her half brother, I suppose, to be, to be murdered, you know, just because like what this guy's cute, like really, anyway, yeah. I, I, that didn't make a lot of sense to me. Now, one thing that, um, that I did learn, you know, of course, from the book, and then also, you know, your, uh, your very helpful author's note at the end was um, how Dionysus comes into it. Now, I didn't realize that there were existing myths about Ariadne and Dionysus, uh, you know, apart from this. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, the 
there are so many conflicting myths. It's really interesting. And one of the books, and I feel really bad that I don't remember the source. I have to try and figure it out. But one of the books I read said that nobody in Greek mythology died in as many different ways as Ariadne um, in mythology. Um, I don't mean to be like, spoiler alert, I'm just saying <laughs> <in> mythology. <laughs> Ariadne is said to have died in many different ways. Um, and they're, they're all con conflicting and confusing. So the, the traditional myth is that Theseus goes to Crete and he's supposed to be eaten by the Minotaur, but instead he kills the Minotaur and Ariadne helps him escape along with her sister. And then um, they stop on, on Naxos and either he forgets her or he's told in a dream by Artemis to leave her there, or he's told in a dream by Dionysus to leave her there because Dionysus wants her for himself. And, or <laughs> that Dionysus comes to Naxos and sees her sleeping and falls in love. And in, in most of these stories, she's pregnant with Theseus's child, maybe. So it's just, and then so in some stories, she's immediately killed by Artemis. And in some stories, it makes it sound like Dionysus tells Artemis to kill her. And in some stories, she dies in childbirth. And in some stories, she goes to, um, she goes with Dionysus to make war and he's fighting with Perseus and Perseus turns her to stone. And in that one, it's like, don't be upset that she got turned to stone because she got turned to stone by, you know, a hero. <laughs> oh, that makes it better. <laughs> like, I don't care who's doing it. Can you not, you know? Oh my gosh. Yeah. So there are a lot of different conflicting stories, but in all of them, she's found sleeping on Naxos because, you know, when you get abandoned, on what you assume is a deserted island, you just take a nap. But I mean, there are these really great works of art and also some very funny ones of, of Dionysus discovering Ariadne on Naxos. And she's always seen as this like beautiful sleeping woman to discover. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah, you know, as you do. You know, um, that's so interesting, all these different pieces of uh, contradictory stories, and you found a way to make them all make sense and to bring them together in this incredible love story. I just thought it was absolutely fantastic. Also, you know, I mean, I, I don't really have any kind of follow-up questions about Theseus exactly, but I really appreciated um, that in, in very few words, you made it very clear how much of a dick he is. <laughs> I just think that's just terrific. Uh, and of course, I mean, like Dionysus, oh my God, he's just perfect. I mean, Theseus is just from a very different culture. And mm -hmm. I mean, because the thing is that the, the Athenian patriarchy that told these myths that was kind of like the last one standing to record the myths, um, you know, they have a very different point of view. So, like I, I get into that with his ideas of sexuality and how it works and it's very different in Crete. Right. Yeah, very, very different. Oh my goodness, yeah. Um, now, I mean, they, they, were, they were so interesting anyway and there's so much to love out about this book. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about, now I loved your, your interpretation of Asterion or you know, the Minotaur uh, for people who haven't read it yet. Um, he's not literally, 
you know, kind of half bull, but he kind of embodies that space, you know, ritually and uh, basically in people's nightmares. They believe that he is literally this bull. And at some point, like he almost kind of literally believes it himself as well. Mm -hmm. So what do you make of this kind of like monster narrative that survived around him? I know you have some thoughts on this. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think it was the modern Mino and Pagan group. Somebody pointed out that the idea of um, Pasiphae, like being attracted to the bull was the greatest kind of Athenian slander mm -hmm. to call her can I swear? Oh yeah, you can swear. You <laughs> can swear. Her, <laughs> to call her a bullfucker, like, yeah. and to take a powerful woman from a different country and to say, you know, she's a witch queen and she is a bullfucker. And um, it makes me think about like how they said that Catherine the Great had sex with horses. Exactly. And people sure. still say that. They still believe it. Well, I actually remember kind of, I don't, it might've been the same year in ninth grade with John Leopold. I remember like a classmate being like, oh, Catherine the Great, she had sex with horses. And I mean, his parents must've like, where would you get that from? There wasn't the internet back then. <laughs> like, right, it's like you're 15. <laughs> like, you know like, that's the one thing you, that's remembered about this powerful, amazing woman is this rumor, this nasty rumor that somebody made up to detract from her like power and personality. Mm -hmm. So the idea that, that this myth specifically was told from an Athenian point of view about their enemy and that they took this woman, this powerful woman and made her into this nothing more than a bullfucker. And then the idea that the story was told from the Athenian point of view and that the Minotaur was just a monster. And I thought, you know, what if it's a guy wearing a bull's mask and they think it's a monster, but it's like such a typical way to other another culture, you know, to be like, those people are so weird and she had sex with a bull and he gave, and now there's a monster who wants to eat our children. Like it's traditional enemy storytelling. Mm -hmm. And um, so, but at the same time, it's like, that's the way we tell the story. And so, I mean, it's like, you know, we know history is told by the victors, but I hadn't really thought about that in terms of Greek mythology before. Yeah, no, that that's absolutely right. And it's uh, it's so over the top, you know? And you know, obviously like with what we know about biology, I mean, obviously that's impossible, you know? <laughs> and I mean, like you think about it, like, you know, come on, is that likely? Is any of that likely? Um, and, you know, people do say that it's kind of mythology, but like a lot of it does have, uh, you know, like a little bit of truth to it. So I, I knew I was going to mention this later on, but it, it seems kind of appropriate here. So I first kind of kind of uh, became aware of Pasiphae because uh, she is supposed to have invented the first female condom. Mm. Uh, speaking of inventions on Knossos, <laughs> right? Uh, so she was said to have uh, invented the first female condom basically because um, because Minos, uh, well, it sounds like he had VD. Like the way mm -hmm. they put it, it was something like he had like demons and scorpions and scorpions. scorpions. And he ejaculated oh. scorpions. Yeah, yeah. Like, is, is that likely? Is somebody going to ejaculate scorpions? I mean, God, I hope not, right? But like, apparently she invented this female condom to protect herself. Mm -hmm. And I mean, to me, that sounds like the most metal euphemism for like venereal disease that I've ever heard. You know, totally. I mean, it's scorpions, obviously. Right. Um, so of course she was said to have invented that as well. So, you know, <laughs> obviously it probably wasn't literally scorpions, you know, but then like, there's probably a little bit of a truth to that, isn't mm -hmm. there, you know, I mean, like maybe 
you know, maybe she did invent that and maybe there was a good reason for that, you know? Um, so that's really interesting to me. And then you do also get into uh, contraception a little bit in the book. What do you know about uh, the ancient kind of contraception going on with the Minoans? Well, I mean, we can't know anything for sure because it's so long ago. And um, I mean, this is, it's Bronze Age Crete. Um, but my, my book is kind of more of a mythical time period. Like I wasn't like, okay, I need to make sure that it's this. I mean, I, I tried to make sure, you know, the, the pipes were made out of the right material mm -hmm. and, um, and I wanted to be really authentic, but at the same time, you know, like I was saying about the Daedalus being, you know, different people over a different period of time. I mean, there's also a, a theory that there were two Ariadnes and two Dionysuses and, Wow. So, you know, there are all these different things. So we don't know anything for sure, but in one of the Minoan sites in Akatori, I'm sure I'm saying that completely wrong. Um, there is a fresco called the Saffron Gatherers and it shows some young girls. And it's interesting, the young girls, it's a coming of age um, image and the young girls had their heads shaved completely, but they had a, I think they had a forelock, which is, seems very similar to what the Egyptians did. Oh yeah. Earlier when you were asking about research, I did do a lot of research with the Egyptians because they had a lot of trade with the Minoans too. And, and they have, they've left more information. Um, so that fresco of the saffron gatherers shows girls gathering saffron and also a woman with a necklace with 28 red beads. And so there's a theory that that was to count your cycle. And so um, I wrote about a coming of age ceremony where they, the, all the women gather together and explain uh, to the new generation what they can expect on different days of their cycle. And, you know, if you want to have a baby, do this. Well, you know what to do. And if you don't want to have a baby, don't do that. Um, so, I mean, there, you know, maybe saffron was contraceptive. Maybe, I mean, we know pomegranates were part of contraception um, and different ways, but it's more just the rhythm method and abstaining if you don't want to have a baby. But I feel like in a culture like my note that, like one that the Minoans had that women would have a lot more freedom to decide when they want to have a baby. And I also feel like they would have the knowledge. Mm -hmm. They're very advanced. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's, that's so fantastic. I love that, that, um, basically teaching sex ed is like part of her kind of service to the goddess, you know, well, it feels I mean, it, like it should be, you know, of course. Like, yeah, it feels like that would be part of your duties as priestess. Yeah, would be to explain the female body to young girls or to girls who have just become, you know, quote, women. Right, absolutely. And, you know, of course, uh, kind of like later kind of mainly kind of patriarchal religions, of course, they, they kind of want to keep that from you. Like they don't want right. you to be in control of that. But this is another way that... Um, that that she has that kind of power that these uh, that these women are are allowed to have this kind of agency and this kind of choice mm -hmm. in their lives. Um, and I think that's absolutely fantastic. There's this misconception in history that um, a lot of women uh, didn't have that kind of power, that kind of uh, agency in their own lives or, or any kind of choice, especially when it comes to, well, I mean, <laughs> their own fate, really, but also like their own kind of reproductive destiny. Now, of course, in the ancient world, that was not always 
the case. You know, I, I think that uh, people have this kind of blind spot for it, but there were like a lot of, you know, kind of strong women and women who were able to make these decisions for themselves. Now, I, I wanted to mention, of course, um, your other book, Queen of Warriors, also has uh, an incredible, uh, strong female lead in Alexandra of Sparta. Um, and that one, of course, that also really stood out to me as, uh, you know, kind of challenging those assumptions. So why do you think it's important to tell these stories of these, uh, these strong women throughout history? What, why, why do you think that that's important? What makes you want to do that? Um, well, I mean, I think that for sure, in many cases, women did not have power, but um, in many cases they did, and those were not recorded or, you know, told to so many people. Um, and we have this image of, especially the ancient world. Well, actually, that's not true. I mean, with this image of women throughout time as just kind of like waiting to find a good husband or being afraid that their fathers would pick some old man for them, which happened a lot, you know? I mean, all those stories are definitely representative of the past, but I've read a lot of stories like that. And so I wanted to do something different and I like seeing, you know, different perspectives. Um, and also I feel like, so I remember this part in the book, the red, in the novel, The Red Tent, where- oh, I love that book. It was so good. I reread it when I started writing historical fiction. And there was this part where the women eat after the men. But it said that the women were actually already pretty full because they were eating the whole time they were cooking dinner. <laughs> and it was like a light bulb for me because I was like, all these things that we've been told, you know, it's like, okay, the women are subservient. It's like, yeah, but they're also like, we we know that women figure stuff out, right? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times people are able, like in these patriarchal systems, it's hard to move forward, but there are also stories where women found a way. And I'd like to tell those stories. I feel like it's important to see that, you know, it's history isn't just one thing, it's millions of stories. Mm -hmm. And they're um, also different, you know, not everybody had the same experience. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I mean, Alexandra of Sparta is uh, a made up character, but Spartan women had a lot of power and kind of the best situation in the Hellenistic world because they didn't have to marry until they were 18. They were fed as much as men. Um, they were treat they were educated and treated really well. Whereas Athenian girls were like married super young, kept ignorant kept isolated. I think that's the big thing is like, when you're able to isolate somebody, then they don't have that knowledge and sense of community. And so that's why in that scene we were talking about before in Ariadne Unraveled, it's, it's the whole community of like, the girls who just had their first menstrual, menstrual cycle, it's their aunts and their mothers and their cousins are all there with them. So it's this huge sense of community. And I feel like that seems really realistic. That that could much, have yeah. And um, you know, of course, um, yeah. a lot of what we know about ancient contraception does survive because of these stories that, that women tell each other because of this knowledge that they pass down uh, from generation to generation. Um, and that is just so fascinating to me. Um, now, speaking of which, so one thing that also really struck me about the book, of course, is that um, for a lot of it, Ariadne has her breasts exposed. 
And this is, you know, it's part of her, uh, it's part of her kind of outfit. It's part of her costume that she wears. Um, and also it's just seen in such a completely different way. You know, it's, it's like a power move, you know, she is blessing the people with her beautiful breasts. And to me, like, this was just, it was, um, it was such a kind of mind fuck, I guess, because like in, in our society, you know, we're, we're socialized to, you know, either kind of like be ashamed of having breasts or to be like fearful of them. Like, what if they turn on you and you get sick? And like, you know, mm-hmm. what if people see this and, and they, they think that you're a certain way, you know, mm-hmm. like you, you think about just like how you're treated differently. Like if you are bustier, you know, like yeah. people make assumptions, you know, regardless of what kind of person you actually are, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and just seeing that kind of portrayed or or seen in such a completely different way was just incredible. It was like a revelation, you know, like hers are just out all the time and it isn't a thing. And it's just like this incredible blessing and she's totally fine and comfortable with it. Um, I thought that was amazing, actually. Um, So what can you tell us about these costumes So it was really hard. So it took me about five years to write this book. And it was really hard for me at first to imagine that you could just, I mean, so the the classic Minoan image of the snake goddess, she's wearing a really tight corslet. Oh, and they probably also did waist training because they're just like these tiny waists, right? And um, she's standing there with her powerful breasts and her snakes out and Um, so that was like the traditional outfit and I didn't know if that was just um, for religious or ceremonial purposes but it turns out that that's probably like what they wore and it's also really it was also really hard for me as a redhead to imagine being bare-breasted all the time um, in the Mediterranean sun (laughs) she's like pure sunburn (laughs) right but they had a much darker complexion than I do and um, you know were really not clothed that much. So, I mean, like the the men didn't wear very much either. So the idea of being bare-breasted, like it took me a while to wrap my mind around. And then I was like, okay, yeah, that's just how they, I mean, I love writing historical fiction because it's so different. And this is such a different culture. And one of the things is that the women have power in their breasts. And at one point, Ariadne said, like, Ariadne says something, I think it's the Dionysus, um, about like, if, if you, if you do something, like, if, if you do something sexually inappropriate, to me, that's on you. Because it's like, the shame is his, not hers. Right. And so, like, that idea of like, she has the freedom, and the man has the responsibility. And I wish we had more of that, (laughs) Um, but you know, it's just like a different, these ancient people who, you know, had all this stuff figured out, but they didn't need that many clothes unless it was, you know, winter and then they could wear more. But the idea of having that freedom, I mean, it really, it, it did take me a while. And then I was like, okay, yeah. Yeah. Her breasts radiate power. just like in the in the snake goddess statue right absolutely and when you when you see that statue I mean that's the first thing you think of it's not just like oh this woman is half naked it's just like look at her she gives zero fucks she is incredibly powerful she's holding those snakes and it's just like yeah (laughs) 
Yeah. Yeah. And there, and it's like a huge amount of power from her, from her snakes to her breasts to just like the power within just her and, whole form, everything. Yeah. 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 And it's not like, Oh, you can see my breath. I mean, when, when you think of like all the stuff that women do to like make sure that men aren't looking at their breasts, it's exhausting. You know, I mean, just and stuff that men don't even know about, like putting on a bra before somebody comes over. Mm -hmm. And like, I mean, I have a friend who has an ample bosom and like she's worn, like she's never felt comfortable in tank tops. And it's like what you're talking about. It's like this idea of like, oh, because you have a bigger chest, you're a different kind of person. Or it's like, I just don't want to get harassed. So I'm going to wear this sweatshirt when I'd be more comfortable in something else. And so it's pretty amazing to imagine a culture where you could just, you know, go around topless and mm-hmm. that's fine. Yeah, it's it's really sad. It makes you um, almost aware that you're missing something you didn't know that you were missing, you know, and that's, yeah. um, that's incredibly sad. And not even necessarily that you would want to all the time. I mean, like, you right. about, like if we went outside, we get sunburned really badly, you know, uh, but you know, it'd be nice to, to not have to kind of worry about that as much. You know? I feel like it's like, oh, I need to hide this thing because I don't want men to be looking, you know? Right. But of course you can't legislate for other people's, you know, right. behavior, no matter <laughs> right. what you do. So yeah. So the, so, you know, I should put on a bra or a sweatshirt or something but I can't just you know put on my corslet and a skirt and nothing else and and my uh high priestess hat and go outside <laughs> yeah yeah but you know like maybe it'd be nice if you could once in a while you know yeah of course it, this is a society summer solstice. <laughs> oh yeah yeah no exactly uh happy yule by the way uh but yeah. anyway <laughs> Uh, of course, this is a society that seems to be uh, more open about their sexuality or at least more sexually fluid. So mm. now, you know, a lot of people think of, of sexuality in terms of, you know, um, like heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, even pansexual. What do you mm. think the situation is, you know, in this society kind of before these definitions? Yeah, so I love this is one reason I love writing about the ancient world, especially um, because I feel like the way we look at sexuality now is so fixed. So I do love writing about sexual fluidity. And I mean, I, I, I feel like they would be what we would call pansexual. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, um, I mean, it's, but if, when I decided to write about Dionysus, I was like, there is no way this is a heteronormative relationship. You know, he has to be, I mean, it's Dionysus. Um, he inspires people to desire. So I feel like the majority of my, it's, it's interesting. Like, I feel like King Minos is pretty, is pretty hetero. Um, and everybody else is pretty uh, sexually fluid and pansexual. Yeah. And uh, the way that you handle that, the way that you write about it, um, it feels very natural, you know, um, and it's, it's almost like liberating to read about it. You know, they, these people aren't, you know, kind of playing by the same kind of like modern rules, you know, yeah. this is like about as far removed uh, from like 21st century America as you can get, you know? <laughs> um, and again, it's like one of those things, it's like, it's, it's sad that we've kind of lost it, but it's nice mm-hmm. to think about things in a, in a different way for a minute, you know? Yeah. And I mean, it's just, it's, it's hard to me that people have to feel so labeled, you know, as one thing or another, instead of just 
kind of, this is gonna sound cheesy, but like living their truth or whatever, you know, and there's so much pressure for society to, to fit in because it's like, if you don't agree with what I think, then you're my enemy. And it's like, it doesn't have to be like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I went into a store and uh, not my neighborhood and I was where my kids and I were wearing a mask and the person who worked there wasn't. And she kind of ignored us and was really rude. And I was like, wow, she feels really challenged because we're doing something different from what she's doing. And I mean, it wasn't like I was looking at her like, you know, are you trying to kill us all? Like, I didn't say anything about her behavior, mm-hmm. but she felt like the reflection of what we were doing was judging her, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So I feel like, you know, that's kind of the root of, of this idea of like, if you don't do what I do, you don't agree with me and you're saying I'm wrong. And it's like, that comes from a really weak sense of self and belief in self. So I really, you know, I, 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 uh, I like writing about times when people can just kind of express themselves in their natural way. And Mm -hmm. if that's pansexual, great. And if it's not, that's fine too. (laughs) That's fine too. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Gosh. You know, that, um, that is so interesting to me and you're, you're absolutely right. You know, the people who are uh, kind of more comfortable with themselves, like they do tend to be kind of less judgmental of other people, you know, mm-hmm. but then, um, but if you are kind of comfortable when, with those people, when they do have those issues, um, it can be, and I, I mean, I, <laughs> for lack of a better term, it can be quite triggering in a way, you know, um, like if they, if they see somebody who's kind of like living their own life, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, well, what does that say about me? It's like, well, I'm not trying to right. say anything. I'm just over here. I'm just buying right. Snickers, you know, <laughs> or like whatever it is that you're doing. You know, and uh, and that's that's messed up. You know, yeah. But anyway, I mean, I'm sure we could talk about that all day too. Um, <laughs> so, kind of, uh, you know, on a on a slightly different subject. This is kind of my current obsession, and I know we've both been reading about it a little bit. So, I wanted to ask you about Mad Honey. So, <laughs> a little bit of context for people, because most people are going to have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, <laughs> so. Whenever I, I research contraception in the ancient world, honey comes up a lot. So it comes up as a, a lot of times like a, a binding agent, you know, like an early form of spermicide. Now, I am not going to say that that is something that works because I don't know. And I don't want anybody getting pregnant who listens to this show who thinks it's a good idea to try it. Do not try this at home. Always okay. with the disclaimers, do not try any of this at home. But anyway, so this comes up a lot. So one of the things that um, that I found while I was researching, you know, kind of honey in the ancient world, you know, not only is it used as, you know, uh, as food, as, as medicine, but also at times it was used as a weapon. So mad honey was a certain type of honey that was, it was sort of formed when the bees are taking the pollen from like rhododendrons, right? Now, when they do that in um, a sort of high enough proportion, that honey will actually have hallucinogenic properties. So certain priestesses, like especially, you know, kind of like oracles, they would have some of this to try to bring on visions and things like that. Um, but in, uh, in the case of uh, Mithridates, he actually used it as a, as a weapon and he poisoned uh, his sort of enemy army. Do you know anything about this? Yeah. Um, I first discovered Mad Honey in The Dove Keepers by Alice Hoffman which is about Masada. Um, I hope I'm saying that right. Instead of saying like, a, um, 
an Indian dish. <laughs> I feel like <laughs> I'm saying the um, the big standoff in um, that the Hebrews had with the Roman army. Um, I can't remember exactly when, but anyway, I read about it in that book, The Dove Keepers, which is an amazing book. And in it, I think it's Pompey, but I'm not 100% sure. Um, his army ends up having some mad honey and uh, it helps the main character in a way. But that was when I first discovered the mad honey and it blew my mind because it's like, this natural hallucinogen and also it's been used in war a few times um and it's just this amazing thing i always love finding out about ancient warfare and um yeah i've also used honey in my writing as an antibiotic mm -hmm. because it does have antibiotic properties as well that's right um, yeah. and it was used to make mead which since i was writing about dionysus when it, so I had two really huge epiphanies or not epiphanies, but struggles, which <laughs> were the first one was um, get, wrapping my mind around the fact that they weren't wearing anything on the top. And the second one was that if the book is about Dionysus, there wasn't wine yet. Wine. Right. Like, so what did people drink? Yeah. So like I had to redo my first scene to have her be topless and also to have them be drinking mead because there was I mean, there was. There, Dionysus invented wine, but it wasn't widespread yet. And it's really hard to imagine the ancient world without wine or in a time yes. before wine. Um, but one of the things that he was doing was traveling around teaching mortals how to make wine. So they drank mead and they drank beer, a lot of beer. Um, and I've actually read that there's a theory that human beings stopped traveling because we settled down to make beer. Okay. And that's why we stopped being nomads because of beer. <laughs> so there was a lot of beer in the ancient world and then there was wine. I mean, you know, this is thousands and thousands of years ago. Um, so, but mead was used to make honey as well. I mean, honey was used to make mead as well. <laughs> right, of course. I haven't had Oh, that's so interesting. My goodness. Yeah, I, um, it just blew me away that it had also been used uh, as a weapon. And then, of course, that um, that connection to the prophecies, too. I also wanted to ask you about um, Ariadne's yeah, prophecies. Really cool. What's that? Sorry. Oh, I said, yeah, that's really cool, too, that they would use it for like the Delphic Oracle. Yeah. Yeah. Possibly. Another one of those things. Yeah, anything that's a, a little bit a little bit hallucinogenic, you know, like people still mm -hmm. kind of do that now. Um, but yeah, now I wanted to ask you about um, Ariadne's prophecies. Of course, this is not how how she predicts the future or how she communes with the goddess. She does it by swinging. Now, I thought that was so interesting. So what, what can you tell us about this? So there's this image of, there's a, a little clay swing that was found in Crete and um, with, at Knossos, and it's in the museum in uh, Heraklion. And it's like, it could just be a child's toy, but it's also a way, it's thought to be a way to epiphany. And it's not a regular swing. It's um, the poles kind of are shaped, um, they're wider at the top than they are at the bottom. Mm -hmm. And so it's harder to swing. And actually somebody in the modern Minoan pagan group built one of these swings. And so I was like, what's it like? 
And, um, and so the idea is like swinging can help you communicate with the divine. Mm -hmm. And it was also so mind blowing to imagine ancient people just swinging on a swing set and thinking like, this is as close as they could get to flying. Um, yeah. And so that idea of swinging to epiphany was really cool. And I, I wanted to go with that. And so I have that scene and there's um I can send you an image of the of the swing because it's really cool great I, yeah uh please do we'll put it up on our Instagram so everybody can see it that's yeah just so interesting to me I think that's fantastic yeah. oh my goodness well I mean it sounds like you've done I mean so much research what's the the most interesting thing that you've uh discovered or your your favorite fact this is such a hard question because I mean <laughs> definitely the plumbing uh from 4,000 years ago blew me away um and then also the mead. So I guess one of the one of the stories was that there's this sacred cave in Crete that bleeds honey once a year. And that these men, what happened? These there's this image called the thieves, and these men tried to steal it, but all the bees attacked them. And then I think they lost their clothing. Um, so that's kind of cool. I don't know. There are just so many things and I can't, I can't think of the best one. That's um, okay. I mean, there's, there's so much of it anyway. And a lot I, of it is in the book. Yeah. Well, I think also one of the things that I thought was really cool was how I realized that Dionysus, like he's seen as the God of, of wine and revelry and <laughs> theater, but he's also just the God of transformation. You know, taking the vine and changing it into something that intoxicates you. So I really, I really enjoyed seeing him that way. Because when I was younger, I, um, I kind of looked at it from a more of a Nietzsche way. <laughs> um, Nietzsche's idea of like Eros and Thanos and Dionysus and Apollo, like being polar opposites. But I started to see him more as the god of transformation. So that's not really a, a fun fact, but. No, it works though. And uh, and speaking of transformation, that it was so neat to see him kind of come into that power. And then of course, uh, the character of Talia, when she kind of gets to become her true self and she gets to transform as well. Now, I won't ruin it for anybody, but uh, if you could transform into anything, uh, what do you think it would be? Hmm. I feel like my first answer to this question is an American dog. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It, would, it would be really cool to be like a raven and to fly that would be awesome but American dogs like with a good owner you know these days they're going everywhere and uh you know they just have a really generally some of them have a really good life so and that's wonderful yeah and of course that's always <laughs> what we want to give to our pets so it'd be kind of nice to almost like be your own pet you know right <laughs> yeah because you know that they're kind of spoiled and you know where the treats are <laughs> and then you know it's like you have a long day and you come home and your pet's just like hey yeah yeah oh that's so sweet so of course um you know Dionysus has all these incredible abilities anyway and, and you get into a little bit of these uh in in the book and you kind of skirt these uh these bacchanals that he has these uh sort of these wonderful how would you describe how would you describe bacchanals for people so there's always music that comes from like nowhere. <laughs> um, I mean, at least in the in 
most of the mythology is like the like once once Dionysus comes into the scene, like music just comes. Um, so it's a feeling of freedom, I guess, and revelry. And a lot of times people feel inspired to take off their clothes and uh, find a partner or two or three. And, um, you know, there's a fire and then there's a lot of wine. Yeah. And uh, it seems very liberating. Absolutely. And of course, these were real as well. And um, and they were regular. And they at one point they got sort of out of control that like Rome basically had to ban them and like really kind of crack down on them. So it, it seems like it was a, a very popular way to worship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so if one out of all the gods like it's kind of the easy way to it's, yeah yeah it's it's kind of fun you know like you're not you're not like fasting or you know going on these huge pilgrimages you're just like getting wasted and having a lot of sex in the woods uh so, <laughs> so speaking of which if one were to uh want to celebrate Dionysus these days or to uh kind of show their devotion would you would you recommend people still do that is there another way that people can uh <laughs> can honor the god yeah, well, I mean, there are definitely, you know, uh, orgies you can attend if you are. That's still a thing. You know, <laughs> um, and, you know, safe and check with your partner. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like the great thing about Dionysus is he, he can be celebrated in so many different ways. Like you can be sober and celebrate Dionysus with music and, you know, like a candle or you can drink a bottle of wine and um, or half a bottle of wine or I've heard that there's such a thing as drinking one glass um apparently (laughs) I've heard um so I mean I feel like there are just a lot of ways you can you can enjoy Dionysus I feel like uh, most people who have been who've had some who've been drunk have experienced what it can be like um sometimes you get really truthful Sometimes you get too truthful. Um, (laughs) Sometimes people get violent, which is another part of what he's about. I mean, especially in mythology, like women ripping up their children, which I, you know, tried not to write about since I want to be on the pro Dionysus team. Um, You know, that doesn't look good for the God, but that was part of the story, you know, Um, and and kind of a need for blood, which doesn't need to happen these days. Um, But one of the interesting things to me actually was when he's inspired to create theater and the idea of that being a new thing. And I think about like how much TV we watch. So I, I do feel like even if you're doing, if you're just watching Netflix, like you're actually celebrating Dionysus too. So I think the safest way would be to have one or two glasses of wine <laughs> and watch a good show. But, and watch a good show. That, that or have an orgy. So or, it's, you know, you know, that, that these are the two choices. <laughs> For sure. Oh, anything in between, you know, just even listening to music or mm-hmm. um, dancing alone in your room or with other people. Because dancing, I mean, like he was also the god of frenzy. But like, you know, when we used to go to, nightclubs and like Mm -hmm. that kind of situation is the perfect Dionysian night absolutely perfect it's a it's a very uh energetic very kind of joyful kind of vibe isn't it Mm -hmm. yeah with that with the stories about the the women 
apparently ripping up their kids. I, I don't know. I wonder if that's, you know, one of those cases of kind of like saying that Pasifay was a bullfucker, you know, I mean, like it was, it was in their interest to, to kind of, you know, kind of put down these, these celebrations. So you know, right. I, don't know, I wonder about that. I know that violence was definitely part of it. And I liked that the way that you handled it where, uh, you know, of course not to have too many spoilers, but the, the first time that the women are kind of brought to this frenzy you know they they go after someone who deserves it uh, right I, I like the idea of him being I mean because he he more than any other god was a god of women yeah and he was a feminine and he was a new god and I really wanted to explore the idea of his godhead and this is like my coming of age Dionysus book because he's you know discovering who he is um, I did not label it coming of age because that would be problematic, but <laughs> but like you know, he's a young god, he's a new god, and he's a god of women. And so I wanted him to be on the side of women. And the stories told about like the stories were all like, if you don't accept me, I'm gonna make your women go mad and sacrifice, I mean, let's just say a young goat, you know, right. but rip it up with their hands. Like there is which to me was kind of like, maybe he gave them the power to unleash their repressed anger mm -hmm. at being in these, like aside from the Minoan, largely patriarchal societies. Mm -hmm. um, so he was definitely a threat to the old gods because he was liberating women in that way and allowing them to be wild and free. Right, it was seen as kind of a chaotic, you know, it's like a threat to that kind of order. It's yeah. so fascinating. Yeah, and I mean, he was the last Olympian god. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's interesting because like for me, I'm writing such a long time ago, but he was the newest one too. <laughs> right, right, wow. Okay, so uh, in terms of wine pairings, uh, now I don't often do these, but I have to ask, uh, what kind of wine would you recommend that people uh, drink while they're reading this book? Well, I mean, if you can get a, a Greek wine, red from Crete, that's probably the best, but most of us can't do that. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I think whatever, whatever red you like, maybe a Syrah, which I guess isn't very Greek, um, but a Cabernet, I feel like red is, you know, more appropriate than white um, because there was no white yet. Um, I mean, red had just been invented. <laughs> right, right. So, so yeah. Uh get a glass of good red and, and track this thing down. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. All right. So uh, where can people find you and in, in your book? Tell us a little bit about that. And what's what's next for you? How can we? <laughs> um, so I'm on Amazon and um, Instagram. And I have an author page on Facebook. And I'm on Twitter, um, sometimes posting about Phallus Thursday, which is a hashtag of ancient phalli or phalluses. <laughs> I have looked this up many times and both are acceptable. Um, and I'm actually working on the prequel to the Queen of Warriors right now. So I'm um, moving up many uh, millennia, millennium. <laughs> I'm moving up to back to 80 years after the death of Alexander the Great, actually a little bit earlier than that. So um, I'm going to be writing about um, ancient Sparta, starting with the siege of Sparta, and then um, traveling around Asia Minor. That's what I've been doing. That's my next big project. 
Wow, fantastic. Well, we cannot wait to read it. Well, thank you so much for uh, being with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, wonderful. Always. Well, uh, when you have your next book out, you'll have to come back and tell us all about it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Okay. What a great interview. This week, we'd like to thank Zenobia Neal for hanging out with us. It's always a pleasure, and her books are next level awesome. Romance fans, don't be put off that they're technically historical fiction. They all include fantastic love stories and very satisfying happy endings, so be sure to check her out. You won't be disappointed. More importantly, I'd also like to thank you for sticking with us. We've been away for a couple of weeks because I've been sick again. And when that happens, well, of course, the day job takes over. Look, I'm probably more disappointed about that than you are. Uh, one day, I hope that I'll get to do the podcast full time. But until that day comes, thank you, as always, for your patience. But it's not all doom and gloom. We do have some good news. These last couple of weeks, I've been working on our longest, most detailed episode so far, and it's a subject very close to my heart. If you can believe it, this one is a year in the making, and I can't wait to bring it to you next week. Also, we are opening up the blog for guest posts again. If you're not familiar with our website, Dirty Sexy History started out as a history blog almost six years ago, and in that time, we've had some truly fantastic guest writers. Later this week, we'll be posting a new article by new friend of the podcast, Jordan Baker, about female spies during the Revolutionary War, and we are really looking forward to that one. You can check it out over the holidays at DirtySexyHistory.com. And of course, that means that we're also open for guest submissions. If you are a history obsessive like we are, and you're interested in writing for the website, please get in touch. We have our submission guidelines on the site under the contribute tab, excuse me, (laughs) and you can also reach us from there. And thank you, as always, to our beautiful patrons on Patreon, Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Rachel Cooney, Michelle Dunbar, James Finch, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Emma Young, Mary McComb, Janine Meberg, Jessica Miller, Kelly Simon, Akko Spoot, and Sylvia Van Eyck. Thank you all so very much. As a special thank you, we are posting the video of today's interview for all of the tiers on Patreon as well, so if you want to check that out and support the show, you can find us at patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Dirty Sexy History, where we will, of course, post the photos from today's show. Zenobia sent us some great ones, and uh, I think you're going to enjoy them. (laughs) So until next week, stay safe, stay healthy, and have a very happy holiday any way you celebrate. Whether you're baking up a storm this week or, like me, you're just going to binge the great on Hulu and have a bit too much mulled wine. Huzzah! See you guys next time. Dirty Sexy History is an independent podcast by Jessica Kale and Dr. John Jenkins. You can find us at DirtySexyHistory.com.